0: So, Alan, it's good to see you again. You just mentioned about
1: Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's set of talks that he gave to a a retreat um, basically for Caro. And so Caro then did the translation that's been published. uh, The book on uh, uh, Anapanasati a uh, manual for serious beginners
0: yeah, um,
1: right I don't think I don't think that Bhikkhu dasa quite understood the word serious in English or he would have changed it did a better word to be used for that would be um, a manual for enthusiastic beginners mm-hmm or maybe he, they were making a pun on uh, uh, getting the beginners out of their serious. <laughs> but the connotation is, is that this is a manual that is uh, designed for those who actually want to get some value out of it. They're, they're, they're serious enough that they're going to actually do the practice. So I think that that was the direction it was going in, but, um, in Thailand, especially the word serious, um, has a connotation is one of the few words that most Thai people actually know now. And that the word serious, um, it actually comes out of Vietnam Mm. in the sense that the RNR, uh, the, uh, American uh, troops would come to Bangkok and um uh you can hear uh the bravado and the anguish of war
0: Mm. and
1: when they're talking they're um uh excited and emphasizing and whatnot like that and uh, and then um within a few seconds they'll say and i'm serious about this and so the thai people have gotten that idea of seriousness actually means angry Mm. to be serious is to be angry and so that's the uh, the connotation that has been picked up over the years is what serious means um, and obviously that book is not about a, <laughs> a meditation for uh people that's going to help them become more angry but rather um uh, that's just why i would think that it would be better if we use the word enthusiastic Right, Emanuel, enthusiastic beginners,
2: Interesting. yeah. So, a manual for angry beginners to let go of their anger, perhaps. Uh huh. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the book, um, it was translated by uh Sante Carlo piku mm-hmm. Yeah, do you know anything about him?
1: Uh we could use this whole talk about my relationship with him. <laughs> I was already at Watson Mok when he arrived, mm-hmm. and he stayed uh, longer. Uh, we were ordained at um, approximately the same time. I was ordained in late 2084. no, excuse me, 1984, and he was uh, ordained in 1985. He was surprised when he got back to Wat Soan Mok, because they uh, sent him to Wat Chulapatan in Bangkok, to one of the main teachers up there, that in fact uh, Achan Panyananda, his Upajaya, uh, was the abbot of the largest temple in Thailand, which was also uh, devoted to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. I mean Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa really is a major element in Thailand. Mm-hmm. And so that's where Santicaro went to uh ordain to where I was ordained locally here by the um uh let us call it the uh the Sangha aristocracy of South Thailand.
0: Mm.
1: My my preceptor was uh K Satharo, uh the uh Sangha Raj of, of South Thailand. Mm. Uh so um Basically, Santa came with a major skill of Thai language. Because he learned Thai language in the Peace Corps and was in the refugee camps, that's why he was in Thailand. And when the refugee camps started to close. Uh, That left him with not much of a job, but he was in Thailand, uh, up in northern Thailand, with the refugee camps. And there he learned about Vicky Buddha and so he takes off with his uh, translation skills and winds up at Wat Suan Mok in uh, 1984. And uh, uh, that was his position, and so that was how he was used. It was as a translator. Mm Mm-hmm. To where I had already been in India, had been with Gawanka for three years, had been with uh, uh, Swami Muktananda and spent some time with Rajneesh and had been putting in about 10 years of solid meditation and and Buddhist studies practice and found out about Bhikkhu Dasa in India. And so I came. And so our relationships were different because I I was in the Dhamma. But Santicaro was into the Thai language. That's why he spent time with Bhikkhu Dasa doing translations to where my time with Bhikkhu Dasa was with the actual Dhamma.
2: Mm. Interesting.
1: So I can go on and on and on, but yeah, I know him well.
0: <laughs>
1: I haven't had any contact with him recently. I sent a donation to his organization a year ago or so
2: yeah. the work seems to be um, interesting sort of uh, collaborative in a way so to describe the book a bit um, so there's there's nine chapters um, and then at the end there's a translators conclusion, summary and suggestions for practice mm-hmm which is this nice little section uh, that uh, Sankaro seems to have written himself, with just basically giving different pointers, different filling in little gaps here, making different points. Um, And then it ends with a translation uh, of the Anapanakati Sutta. And so yes, the, uh, at the
1: very end of the book is actually a translation of the entire uh, Anapanasati Sutta.
2: And to be honest, when I first read it, it looked a little uh, idiosyncratic to me. You know, there were some word choices in there that were quite different from you know Bhikkhu Bodhi and uh, what I'd seen in, in the Thich Nhat Hanh translation, but as I read through the book and I, and, and saw, uh, uh, uh explanation, it all made sense. You know, uh, I was like, word Oh, choice. that's an interesting word choice. And, and now I, 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 kind of feel that I prefer this, uh, version, but you know, we, we can, we'll eventually get to that, you know, those word choices and, mm-hmm. uh, and see what you think of those translations too. So, uh, yeah, it's so just my initial impression of this book. uh, So, you know, the experience that I have limited as it is, you know, sort of comes, I think, from the Burmese uh, side of things. And um, so, you know, uh, based, primarily it seems, you know, in the uh, sati, Satipatthana Sutta, um, which seems to be sort of the, the reoccurring uh, sort of uh, foundation, you know, the four foundations of mindfulness. And, um, and you know, I, I would say that my impression initially, although now I see that this was completely wrong was that the uh, Anapanasata, Anapanasati Sutta was just sort of a, 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 a teaching about uh, how to do breathing. And so, you know, my feeling had been, well, you know, I think I know how to do breathing at this point. You know, you focus on the sensations at the nose, and okay, so now we, we, we don't really need to. So I think the feeling was it was maybe a like a beginner's sutta, and, um, and that, you know, it, it just focused on the breath. But having read this, and, and sort of it, uh, what I've come to see is that that was, couldn't have been more wrong. Um, and in fact, what seems to be in here, you know, particularly with the 16 uh, trainings, Mm-hmm. is a complete system <clears throat> practice that uh, essentially, you know, it, is complete unto itself and that can lead up to, you know, full <laughs> enlightenment, uh, essentially. I mean, it goes all Not the only way. does it
1: lead up to, but that leading up to can be done in um, a couple of mind moments, a second or two which is okay. something that's kind of missed.
2: Yeah, so, so, you know. Because everybody
1: has the idea that it's a long, hard struggle.
2: Interesting,
1: yeah. And this book should be pointing out that, hey, when, when you practice correctly, um, you get immediate results. It's for the here now. It's for this very life but not, on, not this very life that you're going to be living 10 years from now, but this very life that you're living now. Right.
2: Yeah, and I think I know the, the ways in which you're talking. I, I think I know what you're referring to there. Um, and one other thing I'll sort of say about it is that not only, you know, are these apparently like 16 trainings uh, that you can engage in, But in a way, it's also another sort of uh, map of insights, insights. So each training is a deepening of a particular uh, set of insights, Um, you know. i would say
1: it's a deepening of a way of gaining skills. And part of the skills that we will learn is how to look. Right. Right. What to look for, how to look, and so the map is basically uh, just like a physical map. First off, the map is not the territory. Right. And that a map will only have a few of the roads. That in fact, the more roads that you put on a map, the more cluttered that map gets. Okay. And so when you say, well, I want a complete map of the town. That means that not only do you put where the streets are, you put all the houses in place, you put where the dog houses are, then you put in all the water mains and, the, and put where every uh, uh, water meter is. Then you put in all the power poles and where every power line is, and you can see that, wait a minute, we can't make that kind of a map. Right. And right. In fact, the plumbers will have their own map that they care about where the pipes are. And the Mm -hmm. electricians will have their own map of the city that that they only care about where the electrics are. And then some people will only be concerned with where the streets are, and others will be concerned only with where individual businesses and things like that are. So depending upon the interest, the map has um, some indications, but it's not the whole show. The map is not the territory. Okay, that's an important point to understand. Now, if we can back up just a bit about Anapanasati, in the Anapanasati Sutta there that you have, it will say that Anapanasati is to be practiced in the sense of the skill developments for the fulfillment of the Satipatthana for the four foundations of mindfulness. Now, that's an important, exquisitely important point, and I'll get back to it in a moment. And then we practice the uh, Satipatthana for the fulfillment of the Sambojana to bring up the uh, the enlightenment factors. Now, it took me a long time to figure out that the Sambojana, the enlightenment factors, are the fulfillment of the skills that are being developed with the Eightfold Noble Path. They come right in order. Right mindfulness, right investigation, uh, right effort, or actually energy and uh, joy and relaxation, all of those things that are part of the Seven Factors of Enlightenment actually are skills that are to be developed from the Eightfold Noble Path and those individual skills then are mentioned in the Anapanasati Sutta as training skills, or training, thus one trains oneself, is the, the, uh, often the verbs that's used. Okay, and then we practice the Sambojana, the seven factors of enlightenment, for the fulfillment of knowledge and deliverance. The word deliverance is Bhikkhu Bodhi's word in there, but it's knowledge and freedom, okay, are it's Panya Moksha, wisdom and uh, freedom so uh, this is the actual um, perspective that we do but a lot of people think this word fulfillment means over a long period of time that if I practice Anapanasati long enough it will fulfill the Sambojana or excuse me the uh, Satipatthana and then Many more years later, uh, practicing the Satipatthana through Anapanasati will then give the seven factors of enlightenment. But a much better way of looking at it is is that if we practice Anapanasati right now, we are fulfilling the uh, the seven factors of enlightenment and the uh, four foundations of mindfulness right now, gaining that knowledge and that deliverance right now. That's the part that a lot of people have trouble with because they see uh, the Anapanasati practice like everything else in the West. It's a long, hard slog. A PhD starts with ABCs in the sixth grade and 16 to 20 years later, you finally get your diploma. Here in Anapanasati, we start out with a PhD with our first breath. If
2: we're practicing correctly. That's interesting. So would you say that there's a sort of a non-dual element within uh, Bhikkhu Buddhadatta's teachings? Because as I read, there were certain parts that um, I didn't recognize from, uh, I don't know, from, from whatever, the milieu that I have been reading from, you know, uh, and, and we'll get to it. We'll get to some of those parts, okay. but um, it seems like... The answer
1: to that is absolutely yes, okay. and that there are some ingredients in there that are hidden away, some nuggets that you can see actually there, but I can give you some English language words that will help you to clearly understand that issue, but the difference between... Um, unification versus duality, okay? And the words that we're going to use is nurturing and criticism are critical. The critical mind is the mind that looks for the good and wants the good and strives for the good and tries to get the good. And the critical mind is also the one who sees the bad, tries to destroy the bad, throw the bad out, and get rid of it good and bad then are the two dualities Mm -hmm. and you can see that that's a major issue in some of the religions within Christianity Armageddon and the great big war between good and evil right that is duality you almost have to have two gods you can't have just one benevolent god you've got to have a devil too because Mm -hmm. that's the other side right Mm -hmm. But then there is the concept of the gladdening the mind, the unification of minds, the nurturing of the mind, which is non-critical. We get out of the criticism into nurturing. Everything is okay, everything is fine. I have to don't have to look at what's good and bad and try to keep the good and throw out the bad. Everything's all right, let's stop looking at it from what's useful and not useful. Let's look at it as everything is marvelous. Everything is joyful. Everything is fine. Everything's all right. The world doesn't need to be fixed. Mm -hmm. But the only thing that needs to be fixed can be fixed immediately just by changing our attitude, changing our mind, changing our thought from unwholesome critical thought into wholesome nurturing thought so yes bhikkhu Das is very big on unification as opposed to duality
2: it's very, yeah that's very interesting and you, you get elements of it uh sort of peeking peeking through at various points um so i'm what i'm going to do i'm just going to kind of uh, read through uh, i'm going to read some different quotes to you and we can just kind of use them as the basis or, you know okay. to comment on
1: them. My only request is is that these quotes not be pages long each one, but just a paragraph oh. or less so that I can keep track of what you're, what points to look yeah.
2: for. No, for sure. Okay, no problem. Um so the first um chapter is called Why Practice Dhamma. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it it um it begins with a definition of the Anapanasati and then He sort of summarizes the four, um, what are they called again, the four four sections. Okay.
1: Many people call those tetrads. I don't know why, because the word tet has the word three in it. These are actually (laughs) four quadrads.
2: Okay. Yeah, right. Okay, so he, he he says that the actual meaning of anapanasati is quite broad, to recall anything at all with sati, while breathing in and breathing out. Yep. But then goes on to say did that it,
1: the, did it say mindfully breathing in and out or just breathing in and out?
2: It said, uh, well, with. Uh, we're calling anything at all with sati,
0: mm-hmm.
2: while breathing in and sati breathing.
1: while breathing in and sati while breathing out. That's an important point that a lot of people will skip through with that. Mm-hmm. Okay, that the sati is not for just what we're looking at, or what skill we're developing in the moment, but it also has to do with sati on the in breath and sati on the out breath, and there's an important reason for that. And that is, is, that sati is the skill that we're trying to develop. And so what that means is, is we're going to use the breath as something that's recurring almost like the tick of a clock, mm-hmm. except that the clock is running slower with an in-breath and an out-breath. And yet we're going to remember that this is a long in-breath and that this is a long out breath that's part of the reason why sati is actually controlling the breath as a lo- as opposed to letting the breath go back to what we would call normal as opposed to natural that in mm. fact what we're actually practicing with anapanasati is to remember to have a natural breath rather than having a normal breath mm. OK, now the normal breathing is actually mindless in the sense mm. that it's controlled by the very deep part of the reptilian brain that's right down at the brain stem. It's in right right back there behind the ears. OK,
0: <laughs> and
1: this is the area of the body that can or the area of the brain that controls the breathing when it is done normally. And the whole point about the reptilian brain is that it's in survival mode. That's the whole point of it, that this is also the seat of survival instincts. Our instinctual survival mechanisms are built there, and that that part of the brain is operating all the time, and it's very efficient. When I say operating all the time, that means that if you went to sleep, you'd die. If you really went to sleep, if this part of the brain went to sleep, then you, your heart would stop breathing or stop breathing and you would stop breathing. So there's something there that keeps that going. However, we also have done enough research with MRIs to note, and they, this is actually quite surprising, so it was a big deal, that when people are actually controlling the breathing, doing sati with it, then the frontal cortex lights up. In this area and in this area here, two areas of the uh, frontal cortex light up. When I, And so this is a, a point that's really very, very interesting. Is this controlling the breath then activates the higher part of the brain? Mm-hmm. As well as by doing the breathing, we're taking in more oxygen and we're giving that part of the brain uh more juice more um uh oxygen and um, uh our thoughts are cleaner the fuel burns brighter okay uh and so uh this is the part of the reason why controlling the breath for the long deep in breath and controlling the breath for the long deep out breath has so much benefit because it benefits the uh, uh, the physiological, it, it benefits the brain itself, as well as this training of keep remembering and keep remembering and keep coming back to what's going on over and over and over again. So that's an important point with the Anapanasati that is kind of missed, even though uh, go, Goenka and the Burmese method and all of that, they talk about Anapana, they talk about the breathing but it's only in the Anapana Sati Sutta itself where it actually points out in rigorous detail that you're uh, kind of bossing over here, but that that point about that it's Sati of the in-breath and it's Sati of the out-breath not that you're having Sati while you're breathing in normally. But rather the sati is on the breathing itself. This is the found. this is the beginning foundation of uh, paying attention to the body is by learning to control it. Mm-hmm. Learning to control the breathing and noticing with that breath control the various things that are happening with the body. That you can feel like you're beginning beginning to get energized, that you you're waking up. Not only that, but you can feel the touch of the cloth, you can feel the wind, you can feel vibrantly alive, that's part of the practice. Mm -hmm. And that this is the part that's built into the Anapanasati that is kind of missing in the Satipatthana. Mm -hmm. And so when they concentrate only on the Satipatthana, they're missing out on many of the details. An example of that is, is that, yes, the hindrances are in fact talked about in the Satipatthana Sutta to where they're uh, kind of glossed over, mm-hmm. not directly referenced in the Anapanasati Sutta. But even in the Satipatthana Sutta, it says, with each of the hindrances, is this should be abandoned. Mm-hmm. But again, the students, when they read that, they think, oh, well, that means that it needs to eventually be abandoned. Yeah. yeah. Instead of right now, as soon mm-hmm. as you get it, you've got to abandon that hindrance right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is one of the changes of the emphasis, and that's why in, in Thailand and in uh, the community associated with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasu, that they go to the Satipatthana through the Anapanasati Sutta, and we do the Anapanasati Sutta through the Eightfold Noble Path. And when we do it that way, then we can get a much better idea of what's really going on if we just start with and stay in the Satipatthana Sutta alone. Because these tiny little details that are in the Satipatthana Sutta get missed.
2: Good, yeah, yeah, that, that all really good clarifications there. And, and so the next bit uh, says four objects of con- to contemplate. And he, now he's going to begin to summarize before he expands on uh, this, the 16 training. But he says, what are the proper, correct, and necessary objects of contemplation every time we breathe in and breathe out? There are four proper objects of contemplation: the secrets of kaya body, secrets of ved- uh, vedana feeling, vedana, vedana,
1: vedana,
2: vedana,
1: vedana, and dhamma Yes, the, the, I'm pushing
2: some of these words uh, until <laughs> um, the secrets of citta mind and the secrets of Dhamma.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So he just sort of uh, lays out the... the it's the...
1: interesting the choice of the word there that Santicaro uses the word secret, yeah. as opposed to merely hidden or unrevealed. Right. Secret has the... Quali- the word itself has the quality that it's intentionally secret. <laughs> rather than uh, mislaid. Okay, so You have to look at that word secret in the way that it's, these things are not really secret, they're just self-evident, but we don't look, they need to be uncovered, investigated.
2: It's interesting, right, Uh, and and, uh, I'd skip this bit, but um, one of the first things in the book uh, is the definition of Dhamma, And it says, the simple explanation of Dhamma is the secret of nature that must be understood in order to develop life for the highest possible benefit.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Yes. And then he says, in order to develop our lives to the fullest, we must know life's secrets. Life is a matter of nature. Nature in this context means something that exists within itself, by itself, of itself, and as its own law.
0: hmm
1: We're talking about the Dhamma here. Right. Okay. We can look at the word Dhamma in a more broad sense, also. You could go so broad as to use the word Dhamma and translated into the English language thing, T H I N G. And then it fully describes it. Because the Dhamma actually is like the Pali word for thing. So mm-hmm. when we talk about the Buddha Dhamma, we're just talking about the Buddha's thing. <laughs> and when we're looking at the objects in the in in our environment, in our world, everything we call a thing. Everything, every Dhamma. That's the way that we look at it, that everything is a Dhamma. Everything is a happening. Everything is, there it is. It's, it exists.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the higher uh, Dhamma then would be that is when we live our lives according to the Dhamma. Mm-hmm. That we pay we pay attention to the Dhamma and um, let us say, Perhaps a, a misunderstanding would be to pay tribute to the Dhamma, but another way of looking at it is we have duty to the Dhamma. Mm-hmm. And then in fact, Dukkha itself is when we're not giving tribute to the Dhamma. Mm-hmm. Or we're not, we're, we're not doing our duty. Mm-hmm. If my duty is to do this and I don't do it, then I'm going to suffer for not having done my duty. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so a lot of what we are practicing then in Anapanasati is to come in relationship with the duties that we have so that we don't shirk our duties. We don't shirk our responsibilities. And by doing our, our job correctly, we wind up with a very high quality life.
0: Mm. That's
2: an, Yeah, that, that's an interesting way to look at it. And clarifying it, that's good. I appreciate that
1: okay, so continue on then we've we've gotten sure. the word secret and we've gotten the word dhamma
2: <laughs> so well if if maybe just to continue a little with the, with dhamma uh, he says that dhamma has four aspects um, He says, nature itself, the law of nature, the duties that must be performed according to that law of nature, and the fruits or benefits that arise from the performance of that duty.
1: Well, I just covered those things.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed, indeed. Okay, so then he goes into stage one, Uh, and and again, this is just like a little uh, summary uh, before a larger sort of uh, discussion later of these subjects, but stage one, uh, flesh body and breath body, and he says, um, let us examine these four separately, beginning with kaya." And he says, kaya specifically means the groups of elements that are compounded together into a physical flesh and blood body. Mm -hmm. Pali, word kaya literally means group. Mm -hmm. And he says, can be applied to any collection of things.
1: Right, but we use that same way with the word body, like a body of law.
2: Yeah.
1: How about a body of water, which could be of any shape or description with marshland or shores or whatever. So a body of water, that's the word body there. The word kai is um, uh, used similarly. And it's uh, uh, talking about it in the sense of a physical collection of things.
2: Right. And he, he also, it also says, um, that there's a very important component which nourishes the rest of this body, namely the breath. The breath, too, is called kaya, and that is it is a collection of elements.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then he says... Yeah, oh, look how, in fact, if you think about it, we can just look at it from the constituency or the air. The air itself is a, is a body or a collection of all kinds of literally tens of thousands or millions of molecules of um, uh, nitrogen gas and carbon dioxide and um, uh, oxygen, O2, all kinds of stuff. But then also you can see it in the body in the sense of look at the effects of what happens inside the body with that air. Look at all of the stuff that's going on with the exchange of the oxygen and giving off of the carbon dioxide and the other pollutions that then go back into the air for the outbreath. And so this in breath and the outbreath, the air breathe the out the air that you breathe out is not the air that you breathe in. It's a completely different body of breath. Mm-hmm. If you don't believe me, get under the covers with a friend and breathe on each other. It won't stay long. <laughs> uh, we like fresh air. We don't want to use stale air. And so uh, you can see that the constituent components of that body change with the in-breath and with the out-breath. So that's also something to note, to notice the difference between what is the air of the in-breath and what is the air of the out-breath.
2: Yeah, it, it, I'm struck, you know, one of the things about Buddha Dasta is that he really, uh, you know, likes to discuss the, the Pali words and to um, really dig into them, and, uh, you know, one is... He taught me how to do that. Is one of the most important
1: things because... How to say it? I think that most Western translations of the Dhamma out of the Pali into the English were done by people who wanted to, one, learn Pali, and number two, learn the Dhamma. And because of that, there's many, many, many mistakes Mm -hmm. that very rarely are you going to have, and we actually need a translation of the Dhamma from someone who already really deeply knows Pali and deeply knows the Dhamma. Only when you have those two things can you get a good translation. And so far, we, we're still in our first hundred years. We're still in our first generation.
2: Hmm. But it's just amazing what a beautiful language it is and the, the depth to the words. You know, uh, So you know, on the one hand, you have a word like kaya, which you might just see in the translation, body. But then when you look and discuss it, you know, like we have been doing, and you see that there's all these levels to it, it's so yeah. much deeper. Um,
1: because it's a very regular language with definite endings for the uh, the verbs with the case, the uh, tense, and other things like this, like uh, hoti and hanti and... Um, uh, uh, Homey and homesai, all of these different endings, then, uh, and the verb goes at the end of the sentence. For that reason, Pali almost naturally becomes a poetic rhyming language. Mm. It's a very beautifully spoken language. Mm.
0: And it has to
2: Are there any Pali speakers, you know, are there any parts of the world where people speak and write in Pali?
1: But not not in the English, not the English language speaking people, but I assume that there are in Burma and in Sri Lanka and in Thailand, people who can actually hold a conversation in Pali.
2: Like it's part of their culture, like they were... The part of the like, training. Right, training. So it's not really a part of uh, larger culture. There is, oh, no, there- we're
1: talking about monks. We're talking about monks who do a lot of chanting, and so they've actually memorized and, and put a lot of the words to, to memory.
0: Right.
1: Okay. Uh, and uh, so the the chanting then, as well as the reading it, because... Uh, we read words and we see them over and over and over again. So this is one of the things that I would say that will help students is um, if you want to read Buddhism, read, uh, if you can find it, a way to do that. A, any translation will do in English. Doesn't matter who does the translation of what it is because we're only using it to keep track of the Pali. And so on the internet, on Dhamma Central, you can get line by line, a line of poly, a line of uh, English, a line of poly, a line of English, et cetera, like that. And with that, then you, and it also has a rollover dictionary so that you can go and see that, in fact, that the translator who translated this stuff did not use the poly dictionary that is the rollover.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, mm. that,
1: that that many translators um, will get their translation of the word by looking up someone else's translation, and then find out what the word in Pali means because they didn't have a clue. There's something else also that I've come to understand, and that is I've got some friends who read and um, write uh, Thai language, and the Thai have had translations of the Pali for centuries. And in mm-hmm. fact, they've got three different, uh, just like in the Bible, in, in American English, you have the New King James Version and the King James and the uh, New English Bible and all of that kind of stuff. So they've got that kind of tradition in, in Thailand. Mm-hmm. And so many of the words that are translated in English, if we would go even to the Thai, We'll find out that no, the English language translation of this is wrong, that the Thai is correct. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so we could go in and I would think that that would be the right way to actually translate into English is someone or a set of scholars that are sta- that are sitting there with the Burmese, with the Sri Lankan, with the Thai, <laughs> and with the Pali, and with those four languages they can begin to suss out really what the translation into English should look like. Ooh. Wow. Because yeah. those other languages have so much more experience at translating into uh, their native language than English is. We're still brand new infants. And, and the worst of it is is that the original translations and the original dictionaries were done by non-Buddhist who were merely interested in the scholarship of the language itself. For that reason, there is so much Christian language built into Western Buddhism that doesn't exist in the Thai version of it. For instance, words like monk, nun, monastery, temple, chanting, the list just goes on and on of all of these uh, uh, English words that come out of Christianity and don't directly reflect what actually the Pali would be.
2: Well, one of the first books I I recall reading um, that contained uh, suttas and and so on was called the, the Buddhist Bible.
1: I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> Even <laughs> calling it the Pali Canon is you, you just can't get out of Christianity. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and my understanding I can't remember who edited the book, but it it was actually a very early uh, collection of of the suttas. Um, and it was actually mentioned uh, by Jack Kerouac in some of his books as you know his source, and so it goes back to that point and, and before. But yeah, yeah, that I always sort of looked at that the Buddhist Bible and wasn't too happy with that, with the, with the title of that, but. Uh, I,
1: but if you can see the humor in it, then you yeah. don't, I mean, why do you choose to be unhappy about it? I mean, it's, just, <laughs> it's a silly joke. <laughs> well, <laughs> even and, the author didn't get the punchline to that joke.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as, as you said, uh, in, an, in another video I, I saw, um, what? I was raised to be miserable by miserable people. So there you go. So well, uh, I do talk
1: a lot because I've had a lot of students over the years. And I'm really surprised at some of the quotes that I have said that come back to haunt me. <laughs> like that one. I don't remember ever saying that, but it sounds true. <laughs>
2: Yeah, the exact quote is, uh, yeah, we're miserable because we were raised by miserable people, but we could lighten up or something like that. I think this. Mm-hmm. So the next bit he says here is, uh, although we lack the ability to control the general body or flesh body directly, we can master it indirectly by using the breath. If we act in a certain way towards the breath body there will also be a specific effect upon the flesh body.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And so he, uh, this distinction here is very important um, between the flesh body and the breath body. Uh, And he returns to it a lot. And actually perhaps a better
1: translation would not be breath body, but body of breath. Now, normally when we think of the body of breath, we're talking about that part of the body that has association with the breathing, mm-hmm. which would be the nose, the nostrils, the inside, the throat, down into the lungs, as well as all of the muscles around it. And so the rib cage down to the diaphragm, down to the abdomen is all part of the breath body. And that, that if you um, work with the breath body, that will, in fact, um, affect the whole body. For instance, if you start breathing deeply, the body will begin to feel um, tingly alive all over. Mm -hmm. Even your fingers and hands will tingle. Mm -hmm. Okay? So, uh, in the Anapanasati Sutta itself, there is actually... Mm -hmm. Let's say that there is a discussion between Achan Tanisaro and Achan Bodhi or Bhikkhu Bodhi um, about this. Because um, in the Anapanasati Sutta, in this body, uh, that Bhikkhu Bodhi actually puts in square brackets of breath, the body of breath. And what he's talking about, the body of breath, is that which when we're watching the breathing that's the part of the body that we're watching in other words watching your big toe while you're breathing in and out you don't feel actually the breathing in and breathing out in the foot but many places in the body you can distinguish with that part of the body that this is in breath and this is out breath rising is different than falling okay so um tenisero and bodhi the conversation is is that. Achantanisro says take that phrase that you put in there out that it doesn't belong in the actual Pali there is no body of breath exactly in in the Pali and Bhikkhu Bodhi says but that's part of the tradition and here Bhikkhu Buddhadosa, excuse me Bhikkhu Buddhadasa is actually supporting Bhikkhu Bodhi <laughs> and not Tenisero. and I would tend on my side just because of my communications with him would go with Tanissaro anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that so this is one of the issues within Buddhism, but we can use this understanding of the body of breath, right? And uh, to where with the Goanka method, as you'll notice, he does the scanning. He does definitely talk about it in the sense of the body of the breath that when we're in that part of the body, to notice the back will expand, that you can get the touch of the cloth. In fact, you can get your entire shirt. You can feel your shirt by noticing the shirt here, noticing the shirt down here, noticing the shirt on the back, noticing the collar of the shirt. All of that can be noticed because it's touching and sensation. And there's tiny little rubbings that are going on while we're breathing in and out. So as we're breathing out, that shirt will move just tiny little bit and then we breathe in and then that shirt moves a little bit. So this is the way that we begin to understand the body of breath, but that helps wake us up to the entire body. Now with the Satipatthana, we bring that in is that when we we're, uh, we then take that to all of the postures Walking, standing, sitting, lying, whatever posture you're in. And also, when you're in activities, reaching, grasping, touching, eating, defecating, whatever the hands are doing in the Satipatthana Sutta, it says, watch what you're doing. Okay? Okay. And we can do that while mindfully breathing in and mindfully breathing out. We can begin to make it a symphony, That, in fact, that's a a great part of, of music and dancing. The dancers who are really good at it, they have to be careful of their breathing also. as well as people who are playing wind instruments. I really like to watch the wind instruments uh, in the symphony orchestras on YouTube to watch their breathing.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Okay, so the breath body and the uh, whole body are completely interconnected. But we can't work with the whole body directly, but we can work in our practice with this breath body because Mm -hmm. while we're sitting on the floor not much is happening but one thing that is happening is this in-breath and this out-breath right and so we start to pay attention to that we start noticing this in-breath long in-breath and notice a long out-breath that noting here is then the sati of remember that this is a long breath and remember that this is a long out-breath
2: Right, yes. And and he goes on to say, every kind of breath is noted and analyzed. Long breath, short breath, calm breath, violent breath, fast breath, slow breaths. We should know them all. We Mm -hmm. should observe the influence of the different breaths upon the flesh body.
1: Right, exactly. And this is where Bhikkhu Buddhadasa now is pointing out that this Anapanasati is not to be practiced just sitting on the floor in some meditation hall.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And he explains that right there. Because why? Because sitting on the floor in the meditation hall, you're not going to have all of these various kinds of breath. But living your life, you will.
0: Hmm.
1: Wakey, wakey. Watch what you're doing. Notice that breath. (laughs)
2: Right, and to, and to, to watch the, the inner relationship between the breath body and how it conditions and affects the flesh body. He says that's the first step. Mm-hmm. This, in turn, will allow us to master the flesh body by means of regulating the breath. Right. We discover that by making the breath calm, we can relax the flesh body.
1: hmm Long, slow, deep in-breath and long, slow, deep out-breath. In fact, Bhikkhu Dasa right there is following along in the Anapanasati Sutta. And the step one would be the long breath. The step two would be the shorter breath that he's mentioning there, whatever kind of breathing that we have. Then the next one is experiencing the whole body, which is what he's talking about. And that experiencing and watching these long in and out breaths also condition the body into being relaxed. Right. Which is step four of Anapanasati in the sense of the Kaya. So the Kaya Nupasana is... um, mindfully breathing long in and out long and then mindfully breathing what in and out whatever kind of breathing you are depending upon the moment and then uh experiencing the body both the breath body and the whole body and then this whole sequence then brings one into a state of relaxation now that state of relaxation doesn't happen automatically we actually have to fulfill some of the other parts of Anapanasati, the Vedana and the Sita. For instance, if the Sita, if the mind is spinning and burning and angry, that even if we're saying breathing in and angry and breathing out and we're angry, we're still not relaxed when we're, when, when we're upset. So it takes other aspects that are brought together so that the body will relax. Now in some descriptions of the uh, first jhana uh, the five main components does not mention relaxation but in other uh, descriptions of the first jhana relaxation is actually a component but it's more of a component of the end result to where the the, the factors of the first jhana would be removal of the hindrances and bringing the body or uh, mind into a state of satisfaction, relaxation, peace, uh, comfort, security. And then that pro- will bring about the relaxation of the body. So we can say, ah, <laughs> and become completely relaxed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But the way that the, uh, the sutta is... Uh, um, uh, phrased and the way that we look at the Satipatthana, it gives people the false impression that, oh, Kaya Nupasana needs to be practiced a long time before we ever do any nupassana. Nupasana. And, and uh, the answer to that is you can't take the mind into the meditation hall and leave the body and the feelings in the bed. You got to take the whole show in there and work with the whole show. With every breath, the whole show is there. The body, the feelings, the mind, the mind objects are all there within one breath. Therefore, we cannot say I'm going to concentrate on just one aspect of Anapanasati, that we need to make it more like, um, uh, let us say music, in the sense that uh, the piano teacher does not say, OK, Johnny, I'm going to teach you how to play the piano. Today we're going to do C and we find the the note C. Okay, press it. Okay, press it again. Okay, now you go home and you keep pressing C over and over and over again and come back next week and we'll get D. <laughs>
0: All
1: right, they don't talk about it like that. No, in yeah. order to play you got to play more than one note together or in sequence right there in that one little passage. You can't spend three years on the note C. And yet a lot of people think that meditation is to be practiced that way. Another silly example is a driving school. You're going to go to this school to learn how to drive an automobile. Well, the first lessons are going to teach you about the steering wheel. And then the second lesson, they're going to teach you about the throttle. And then the third lesson, they're going to teach you about the gears. And now you're good to go. Come back and we'll give you the fourth lesson about the breaks next week.
2: Be- because there are some people who teach this practice as almost mechanically sequential, right? Like you have to do them in order and you have to just one, two, three, four, up through 16. And, you know, if, if you're practicing and and you get to step five, the next time you got to start over and you so, but my understanding of what, what, what you're saying is that there's a lot of uh, in, interpenetration of the different elements.
1: Here's an example of that that's very clear. You cannot control your breath to make this a long, deep in breath unless you're controlling the mind also to take that long, deep breath. They work together. Right. It's not just long, deep in-breath, it's the mind working in conjunction with the body.
2: Yeah, so it's interesting in reading this, um, he never makes that point that you can, uh, sort of jump around, let's say, uh, within the 16 parts. That's never explicitly said. There's one part where, and I can't remember if it was in the, the translator's recommendations where, uh, it, I, and, uh, and we'll find it later uh, as we sort of work through it, but it seems suggested that maybe uh, they're talking about it in a sequential way. Um, so It looks like it doesn't. And in
1: fact, the normal uh, way that the Western mind works, we would think that it would be in sequential. That you get step down, step one down really pat before you go to step two. Right. But we can't practice that. You can't drive a car like that. (laughs) You have to be able to manipulate much of the car all at the very beginning. Yeah. That any experienced driver that sits down in a new car that they've never sat in before or are going to drive, it would be a good idea for him to make a check of all of the various features he's going to need while driving that car to make sure he knows how to turn on the lights, turn on the windshield wiper, and do all of that kind of stuff because he might need it on this journey that he's about to go on. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for that reason, we're thinking this is also anapadasati, that it actually has to come together as a unified practice rather than one step after another after another. And this, I think, is one of the problems that people are having when they read the various modern books on Buddhism. Oh, I'm at stage five. Right. Instead of to say, today I was stage one through nine. <laughs> One, seven, four, three, six, two, five, eight, back and forth. That's really what's really going on. And if we can see that, then it's liberating. Mm-hmm. But if we think that we're in some sort of structure, that we've got to do this, and then we got to do that, and then we got to do this, then that actually brings on an arbitrary uh, bondage.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That will prevent students from actually gaining correct practice. Now, another way of looking at it is, is that, yes, this wasn't described in the suttas because I don't think anybody in the time of the Buddha had that mentality that things had to be done to great detail and perfection in one stage before it goes to the next. Right. Just like, I mean, no one would, would understand that you learn to drive an automobile the way that we were talking about. It is just naturally people would understand it. Yeah, I've got to learn how to use the brakes before I take this car out on the road. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Okay. So, why is it that we've gotten the mentality that things have to be done in a certain order because they are discussed in a certain order? We're discussing it in a certain order for understanding, but it's to be practiced in whatever order these things come. And especially if we put it in reference to the Eightfold Noble Path, we can see that sati is to remember, then investigation, to look at what's going on, and then right effort to go in and make the changes that need to be changed and to change the thoughts. Okay, so this basically is the the practice of anapanasati. So you could say that the first step is step nine, the second step is step 10, the next step would be step one, and then the next step would be step seven or six, and then the next one would be step five, followed by step four. (laughs) Now, in that regard, what that means is to wake up, look at what's going on, uh, take the effort to gladden the mind, then we take a deep breath, and then we feel relaxed and comfortable in the mind, we feel secure and safe, and then the body
2: relaxes. I mean, it it just makes sense, uh, you know, when you explain it that way, is having the ability to to move around and develop the different elements at different times, it just just makes sense. and, you know, that you would need to be developing them all sort of simultaneously and that you need to be switching around.
1: Uh, Depending baseline. upon your limit of time for simultaneously.
2: Yeah.
1: You could say that the War of 1812 in the United States and the War of 1812 in Europe happened simultaneously because it was 100 years ago, but in fact, they were different times of the year and Mm -hmm. so they didn't happen simultaneously but we think of it as simultaneously because of our frame of uh, a time frame reference so at the nanosecond level nothing happens simultaneously that you can be aware of because we can't think that fast right
0: yeah yeah
2: yeah that that the idea that so that's a little piece of doctrine i haven't quite nailed down yet um The idea that you can't perceive any one thing exactly simultaneously, right? It it has to be one moment at a time.
1: One mind moment at a time. Yeah. And a mind moment lasts about a tenth of a second, maybe. uh, And that's just kind of general because each individual uh, does their thing. But they have done measurements with reaction time and there's simple reaction and there's compli- complicated reaction times in the sense of um, a simple reaction would be that your screen is red on the website and then they turn it green and as soon as it turns green you click the mouse how long from the time that it t- they change the screen from red to green that you hit the mouse click is normally about 200 to 250 milliseconds, various differences and various skills that people have had, for instance, down at about 200 uh, milliseconds, they will give you the rating of black belt karate. Uh And if you're down at about 180, 180 milliseconds, then they they will say that you're um, Olympic champion material. Mm. Wow. Okay, so this is the way that this website was talking about it. But you can also understand that it takes two mind moments. The yeah. first mind moment is to recognize that it's turned to green. And yeah. then the second mind moment is to flip the switch or to click the mouse.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that fits in directly with, yeah, a mind moment lasts about a tenth of a second. And 200 milliseconds is reaction time at a, with a very simple reaction. Most of our reactions are more complicated, and a more complicated reaction would be, okay, uh, the screen is red, and we may change it to a whole variety of different colors. We've got 15 or different 20 colors. We've got chartreuse, and we've got uh, brown, and we've got black and white and all kinds of colors. But if it turns a particular green, a kelly green, then you click the mouse. Mm Okay, now that reaction time takes a whole lot longer to get that one right. Now, yeah. we're, now we're up to about 300 milliseconds to 400 milliseconds, which means now it takes three or four mind moments to make that distinction. Okay, so this is all very interesting research that we're putting on nowadays that the Buddha didn't have any access to at all. Right. But he was completely empirical, and yet he could still figure all of this stuff out.
0: The Some more power- that
1: I understand the modern neuroscience and to see how closely the, Bik- the Buddha fit, fit in with what they're figuring out now is actually mind-blowing. How could he have known all of this stuff 2,500 years ago and the scientists are just now figuring out how to figure it out?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some powerful concentration to be able to look that deeply
1: Except that I wouldn't call it powerful or concentration.
2: No. I would call
1: it quick. Yeah, quick. Quick. Yeah. Quick. How quick are you? Mm. This is reaction time. And the way of looking at it is, is that instinctually we were raised out of very from primitive times where life and everything with it was, a, was uh, dangerous, it was a jungle. And the survival of the fittest, one of the survival fitness techniques is if you can react to a predator, if you can see him quick enough to get out of his way, you will survive. And so you have the concept of quick and the dead. Okay? In modern society, it's the quick and the miserable. Okay? So, if we are quick enough with our wisdom, or quick enough with sati, then we can be quick enough to interfere with our instinctual, instant reactions to things. Because basically what we're doing is we're changing the old habit patterns that are based upon um, instincts. The self-preservation instinct, the way that it talks, or the way it communicates is with fear which means that if, it, if the self-preservation instinct gives a false positive, are you, how long did it take us with wisdom to wake up to recognize the fear that I'm feeling right now is inappropriate, this is a false positive that things are in fact pretty safe right now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You can see that in the reaction of people, let us say that you had a, um, uh, without much warning, because this will happen, that all of a sudden lightning will strike very, very close by giving a huge, huge bolt of thunder. Mm. And everybody jumps. Reaction, right?
0: Mm. Right, yeah.
1: There, there was, uh, this happened several years ago, but there was a lightning bolt that struck so close to here that it lit up everywhere. It was a flash of lightning that just lit up everywhere in all directions. It was a flash of lightning immediately followed almost instantly by a clap of thunder that was so loud that the house shook. (laughs) But the interesting thing about it was, is that uh, as I was watching this, everyone in the house, including both the dogs, were literally off the floor (laughs) like that. And here I am sitting and watching this stuff and looking at all of these reactions that people are having Mm. to where if you recognize what's going on, you don't have to react to that. You can hear thunder as thunder rather than hearing it as danger. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. How fast are you going to be so that you don't have to have that startle reaction? Well,
2: yeah. So... I got to say that even, you know, when I practice and and the bell goes off, I jump almost every time. So um, my understanding is that some people get to the point where uh, they don't react to a bell. They're not startled. I don't know what that signifies, but I do jump.
1: Okay. Watch that jumping.
0: I'm sorry. Say that again.
1: Say, so watch that jumping.
2: Watch that jumping, yes. Yes. Watch that
1: reaction. Begin to understand that, yes, um, you can control your reaction time. Mm. That you can, in fact, you can bring the mind, you can because you see, in that reaction time that we that we were talking about is a contrived situation because anyone who's going to be taking that test, they know they're taking that test and they're standing there waiting for the screen to turn from red to green. Mm-hmm. That flash of lightning just came out of the blue, literally. <laughs> <laughs> that thunder came right out of the and people are not going to be ready for it. But if you are ready for anything then you can react to it in that same reaction time rather than having the react uh, rather than having the instinctual reactions instead yeah that's incredible yeah uh... so it's not deep concentration it's not deep concentration deep concentration is not going to buy you this fast reaction time that we're talking about to remember to wake up to keep waking up that's what sati is is to remember to wake up to look to investigate to uh to be and they, the english language word mindfulness just does not give it the power that it needs that in fact mindfulness as a word is almost never used in english language other than within buddhism it's one of those words that was manufactured in english to fit something in buddhism because people didn't quite understand so mindfulness is uh, a mistranslation, and we don't even know what it is. Another one that's like that, by the way, is upeka, that is translated as into equanimity. But nobody ever heard of the word equanimity until we hear about Buddhism anyway. So I don't understand why they invent these English language words to try to uh, to put a con- uh, to convey something. When the people are going to misuse that word because they don't know what it means, it's not part of their language anyway. But I believe that everybody understands me very clearly when I use the word (laughs) wakey-wakey. We get that. And that's what we mean by sati, to wake up. Look at what's going on. What's your reaction time? How quick can you respond to what's going on? So that you don't take off in the wrong direction?
2: Yeah, it's a, so. When I think about my connotations of mind mindfulness, um, I sort of get this feeling of mindfulness as sort of a uh, I don't know a a a, a sort of you're uh, you're in a smooth continuum, you know uh, of I don't know of awareness. It has a very calm sort of connotation to it but wakey wakey seems much more much more I don't know alive you know much more mm-hmm. the present moment mindful it seems to I don't know it has this sort of continuum to it mm-hmm. I don't know but those are just my connotations but connotations are important you know I mean that's
1: right exactly if we understand the right
2: connotation it, then we can... it sounds boring I'm sorry what Mindfulness, I think, sounds boring, you know. To be mindful if we think about maybe the way it, it's used often, you know it, it's almost like, okay, you need to be mindful of this. Uh, you need to be useful
1: would be careful.: Yeah. To be careful. We could use that word because we're taking care, and the word "care" has a lot to do with nurturing. So a better, perhaps a better word than mindful would be to be careful, to be caring. But even that doesn't have quite the value of this sati, to wake up. Right. Pay attention, look at what's going on, uh, to investigate.
2: Even the word sati is, is sort of sharp,
1: you know. It's a sharp word, it is. Yeah. It pokes you, you are, are you, you want to poke into something.
2: So, uh, so then he, he goes into stage two, uh, and summarizes a bit and he gets, you know, uh, I like, I like some of the descriptions here. You get the sense that he's very sharp, uh, in, in the way that he describes some things and I, I'll give you the example of it. So now he talks about Vedana, the feelings. And he says the Vedana have the greatest power and influence over human beings, indeed over all living things. Absolutely.
1: Do you understand that? Let me give you a little bit with it. You are driven by your feelings. The feelings are the drive, the motivation behind it, which means that our feelings arise depending upon how our internal representation of what our sensory awareness is, it impacts us, it hits us. Mm -hmm. It's almost like pulling the trigger. But the the power behind that uh, bullet coming out the barrel is... Mm -hmm. Uh, the powder that burns, okay, that's Vedana. A lot of people think that because there is um, liking feelings or feeling of pleasant, that they, um, and I was this way too. I said, okay, well, we have two kinds of feelings, a good feeling and a bad feeling. And then I understand, no, wait a minute, we got two kinds of bad feelings and one kind of good feeling, but at least we're in, on the road. And what are the three feelings? One is I like it, the other one is I don't like it, and the third one is I'm confused, I don't know whether I like it or not.
0: <laughs>
1: okay, and then we come to understand, wait a minute, if I like it ignorantly, then liking it ignorantly will lead to wanting and the feeling of I'm incomplete without it because I want it. That means that all three kinds of feelings All three, I like it, I don't like it, and I'm not sure whether I like it or not. All three of them are problematic, leading towards dukkha. Mm -hmm. That there's not a good feeling and bad feelings. There's all bad feelings. There's only one kind of feeling, and that is the feeling that drives us into activities. Right. Because of desire based upon liking and not liking. So that's why that power is there. Yes, our feelings drive us everywhere, which means that when we come, when we begin to master the feelings, we're not driven so much and there's not so much to do anymore. And so learning to manage our feelings would be an action that would lead then to the end of all kinds of other actions. Mm -hmm. Because if we just let the feelings go, then we have a lot of traffic of feelings out there mm-hmm. so imagine that it's like a, a, an action that leads to the end of action it would be like the cops would bring and put a roadblock on the highway mm-hmm. all they have to do is just put a couple of police cars right there on the road and guess how much traffic they can stop with that mm. okay yeah. and so yeah. this is what the buddha means by action that brings the end of action mm. Because all of this action that we're involved with has to do with how we feel about things. And so if we can come to have wise feelings, then we don't have so much to act anymore. There's not so much to do. Because much of the doings that we do is reactions to trying to get rid of the feelings that we have. If we want something, we want to go buy that thing that we want so that we stop feeling like we are missing without it we'll feel good when we get it but going and getting it was driven we were driven to go get it because we felt bad because we didn't have it we wanted it well now if we don't want anything now we don't have to go get anything because we don't want anything we're good to go we're already okay
2: well you described it as the the uh what the uh the gunpowder. i'm sorry what was that last you, de- you described it as the gunpowder, the gunpowder, right? Right. The, the, mm-hmm. the, yeah, right. So the, our entire species is forced by the Vedana to do their bidding. Right, exactly. <laughs> that gunpowder pushes
1: that bullet out because yeah. the gunpowder is going to burn. It demands it to be burned. It's got the laws of physics to make that powder burn and it's going to force that shell out. That happens also in the mind. Once those feelings come up, they are going to force the individual into behaving according to those feelings.
2: Yeah, he has a very direct uh, way of writing, and, um, you know, the word I used was sharp, almost biting, you know, in the description, you're not. This is not the sort of, oh, um, you know, wishy washy, uh, you know, super friendly, sort of version of the of the Dhamma that you sometimes get. That just feels like mush. You feel like he's he's slicing through. You know, very clear, very direct language. Uh, you know, cutting mm-hmm. right to the heart of it. I don't know that I've read a, a description of uh, of, of Vedana quite like that. Um, but, uh, and then he goes on well, to... Well, you
1: see, in our society, we love feelings. Right. But it, in right. fact, if people didn't have feelings, we wouldn't have any business. Yeah. Why does GM, how can GM sell cars as if they don't get people to like their cars? Right or to need their cars so when you look at it that way our whole economy i mean if everyone and it's not going to happen and i don't intend to try to make it happen but if everybody just woke up dude tomorrow morning the economy would completely collapse because nobody would go to work nobody would uh i mean everybody's just already happy so why bother
2: Yeah, it's really inter- yeah, it's it's so interesting that so much of our economic activity it, so little of it is based on need and so mm. m- much of it is based on feelings, a consortium of other motivations, feelings that have nothing to do with a need, you know, mm. Uh, even food, you know, you think that the purpose of food is to can, to perpetuate the functioning oh, of your... In, in
1: the West, food is a, a form of entertainment.
2: Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's I think at one point, point of the book, um, bait. <laughs> so, he, so he has this uh, distinction between foods, you know, and he says there's food and then there's bait. And I can't remember exactly how he defines bait, but bait is, you know, a food-like product um, that really isn't about, you know, nourishing your body. It's about pleasure or other motivations.
1: Well, you can see that directly in the sense of junk food is bait. It doesn't have any nutritional value. And in many cases, if you are very careful you'll recognize that you don't even like the taste of it. Doritos, for instance. And yet people get addicted to eating Doritos, and part of the reason they do is because of the advertisement and the availability and all kinds of other stuff. But if you really, really tasted a Dorito, you might not want a second
2: one. Mm. Yeah, that's another curious thing about people is uh, how we seem to get locked into pattern, repetition patterns of things that we think are fun. But when we actually examine our experience of doing those things, they aren't fun. Um, and then, so sometimes we keep doing it because we think, well, this is supposed to be fun. Uh, and, and we get locked into it. And That's a, you know, a lot of what addiction is. You know, are things that we think are fun that actually are not fun, but are destructive, which is probably a lot of what we do.
1: They still have that promise. They still have that bait. That's the bait. The bait is the promise that is not fulfilled. Yeah. For food, it would be the promise that this food tastes good. And in fact, it may not. And an example of that, um, just not only out of my own past, but this is well known. The example would be yesterday's French fries, right? Uh, now, yeah. French fries fresh out of the, uh, uh, the cooker or, or whatever is, is hot and steamy and delicious, but old yesterday's fries are cold and hard and oily and greasy and nothing like yesterday's our, our, uh, new french fries. Yesterday's french fries are not delicious. And yet people will look at the, the, the french fries and say these are french fries and therefore I know what french fries taste like and they're delicious and I'll have them. And here they go shoving all of those undelicious french fries in their mouth until all of the french fries are eaten. And they're not enjoying those French fries. They're only enjoying the uh, memories of the French fries that they used to have when they were kids or something.
2: Right, yeah. Yeah, I've had similar thoughts about uh, macaroni and cheese, the boxed macaroni and cheese Mm -hmm. that we have in the United States, Kraft. You know, which at one point I, I, I think was the primary staple of my diet for many years as a youth. Mm-hmm. Um, when I give it to my, my own child who also seems to like it, what I, what I've noticed is that there's actually a very small, there's, so there's a moment when it's very, very watery or like liquidy. Mm-hmm. And then the, so it, it's not too good at that moment because it, it's, it's kind of like it's soupy. And then the next moment the soupiness has been completely absorbed by the noodles and it loses its cheesiness. And now it's, it's kind of sogginess. So there's really no point at which it's actually very good. And then it's really bad. The next day. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> and yet it's sold and people buy that product. Am, and am it's I, sold. the interesting part is, is that if it wasn't sold, it wouldn't get bought. It has to be sold right yeah television is the advertisement medium for for the selling and basically what they're selling is convenience so that mom doesn't have to do anything for her kids other than just open a box and throw some stuff in it and here kid eat this i don't care whether you like it or not mommy made it so
2: it yeah it's pretty it's pretty amazing um it, it and you mentioned the, the narrative about feelings you know is that in so many stories uh you know is that they are really what make us human, they're what separate us from the animals that you know and no, we see- no,
1: animals are driven by feelings also
2: yeah, yeah, I think that that you know particularly vegetarians uh are sort of tuned into that right like the animals seem to have an emotional life and but you know then the connection being well they have feelings we have feelings and so we're linked by feelings you know uh, and so again it's based in a sort of valorization of the feeling as some, something that you know is what makes us really special you know makes life very special or the feelings
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, when you see a statement like this, you know uh, where he says that um, you know it, it, our species is forced by the Vedana to do their bidding. It it's almost uh, it's interesting that line. It's almost like a like a like a parasite. The, you know the connotation of it. We're being forced to do their bidding. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, our yes. entire species is forced to do a bidding uh not a very positive uh representation you know of the feelings
1: um but you and- could also hear it in a different language we as humans and dogs are driven by our desires right okay I- and that's a little more modern language that that is quite I mean anybody can understand that. That's actually part of our lingo that we are in fact driven by our desires. The business community knows this. That's why they want us to desire their product. Is because if we they can get us to desire their product, then we will be driven to go get it.
2: Right. Yes.
1: So we are driven by our desires, our wants, our tanha,
2: our thirst. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Yeah, desire, it's also something that often is uh, described in a very positive way. Um, You know, depression is sometimes described as the lack of a desire. you know, where somebody just sort of like gives up on their desire for a period of time. And so that's a problem. We got to get people desiring again. Except
1: Um, that, no, here's the point about that though, is, is that they have to say, I want that person in the depression to desire what I want him to desire, rather than for that person in depression to be desiring what he is actually desiring. Because, in fact, depression itself is nothing but a weighted down desire, completely, completely covered with desire in the sense of uh, don't know where to go, don't know what to do, poor me, pity party, the whole nine yards of it is all based in desire. Mm -hmm. If they were in the place where I don't want anything and I'm good to go, then they wouldn't be depressed at all. Depression is, in fact, because they're in the state of desiring and not getting what they are desiring. And so they say, poor me, what's the point? I'm no good because I don't have what I want. Mm-hmm. And so the business people or the psychologists say, hey, man, don't want what you're wanting. Come one want <laughs> over this. And if you want what I've got for you, I'll give it to you or I'll sell it to you. And then you won't be depressed anymore because you'll... <laughs> but you can see that in the fact no it's not a matter of desire or no desire it's a matter that there is desire Ooh. and that desire is what drives us whether it drives us into depression drives us to suicide drives us to a phd drives us to town it doesn't matter what it is it's always desire is the motivating factor under there mixed with ignorance and when i'm saying desire i'm talking about also the desire to destroy to get rid of for instance if the arm has a scratch or an itch rather an itch we will have the desire to get rid of that itch
0: mhm
1: yeah this is what is called tanha and tanha is the desire or the uh, uh the explosion that comes out of Vedana. The, uh, the, the desire itself then is, uh, could be called the Vedana, the want, so we can just make the decision this way. If I like it, that's Vedana. But liking gives rise to I want it. And that's Tanha. Mm-hmm. And then if I like it and I want it, then it must be good, and now we're clinging to it as upadana. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. I like it. That's the vedana that gives us the motivation to go get it. I want it. Right, craving. Then, craving. That's the Cra- word for it. Craving is is uh, tanha, and we can also use the word thirst or wanting. Because you see, the word craving is a really, really strong, powerful word. And when people hear the word craving, they'll say, "Hey, man, I don't, I'm not craving anything." Yeah, but you want stuff. Okay. And another one like that is the word dukkha. Dukkha is um, uh, sometimes suffering. But if you ask the ordinary guy out on the street, "Hey, man, I've got something. I've got the the dhamma for you, and um, it will." Eliminate your your suffering. And the guy will say, hey man, I'm not suffering. Right? But Dukkha is more broad than just suffering. It's also just uh, down to the level of any little tiny dissatisfaction. So that we can get into ourselves into a state of satisfaction. Now we're out of Dukkha.
2: Yes. It, it, so he describes... The Vedana, he also describes it as a, quote, conditioner of the mind. Mm -hmm. So it creates the conditions and influences the mind.
1: That statement is actually uh, step eight of Anapanasati. It is to recognize that Vedana, our feelings, do condition our mind. Mm. A really, really good example of that is a child walks out on the stage in front of mommy and daddy and the whole family as well as all the neighbors and the other kids, mommies and daddies, and he has stage fright. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: That stage fright then will prevent him from being able to say his lines and he will freeze. That's it. Right Right. there. That's Vedana influencing Mm -hmm. the mind. Another example of uh, Vedana influencing the mind is when, uh, let us uh, use the example of debate, formal debate, like the debate society and that kind of stuff. One of the rules of the debate society is no premium attacks. In other words, I can attack attack the uh, uh, the opponent for his uh, position, his debating point but I cannot attack him personally. Right. Why? If I attack him personally, that will give him feelings. And those feelings then will interfere with his ability to do the debate.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. I bring you, as an example, the 1972 World Chess Championship that was between Boris Spassky and Bobby Fischer. I tell this story from time to time. (laughs) Bobby Fischer was an American who won that championship by subterfuge. But in fact, Boris Spassky was well known to be the very best champion of chess in the world. But Bobby Fischer brought more tools into there than just the chess. He played psychological warfare against Boris Spassky. Mm. What would he do? Several things. One was uh, in chess, if you touch a piece, you've got to move it. Mm. What Bobby Fischer would do is he would take and he would hover his hand over that chess piece wobble it around like that and have the entire audience and and Spassky and everybody think that he's going to move that chess piece next because he's dancing around it with the idea that he's tu- but he's not really physical touching it so he hasn't broken the rule yet and so if he moves another piece he can point out hey i didn't touch it
0: mm-hmm.
1: right mm-hmm. That was one of the things he did. The other thing he did was when it was um, Spassky's time to, uh, to move, Bobby Pischu would get up out of his chair and walk around the stage and get behind Spassky <laughs> and look over his shoulder. And that completely discombobulated Spassky. He didn't know what to do about the fact that Bobby Fischer was behind him looking over his shoulder rather than sitting across from him at the chessboard. In the uh, 2016 uh, presidential elections, Donald Trump did exactly the same thing to um, uh, Hillary Clinton. He stalked her while she was trying to um, uh, give her talk,
0: right? Mm Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, there he is that's step 8 of Anapanasati but uh-huh. now we're looking at it as how negative emotions will condition the mind we can also understand that if we can begin to control those emotions then we can condition the mind more directly with wholesome stuff rather than conditioning it with unwholesome feelings
2: right yeah he says if we master the Vedana we will master the world Absolutely
1: <laughs> absolutely. If you can master your feelings, you are the master of your world. If you can feel the way you want to feel, how would you feel? Mm-hmm. That that's part of the practice that's an integral part that's a very that's if you want to think of it as a as a meaningful one-liner or even a secret
0: mm-hmm.
1: that's it. To master your feelings is to master the world.
2: Yeah, it's 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 powerful. You don't have to
1: fix the world by the way. The world's not broken. What's broken is the way we feel about the world. <laughs> and if we can feel uh, if we can master those feelings then so let's take that for a moment. If you can master your feelings then how would you feel? If it was your choice, most people don't have a choice because they're not aware that they've got a choice.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not only that, but they think that the feelings are the boss. I am sad.
0: Right. I am
1: happy. Okay. When you say I am sad, what that means is, is that sadness has taken over, and I have become that sadness. I am that sadness. I defined myself in this moment. By using the word sad.
0: Right? Yeah.
1: But that's a choice. You have a choice. Are you going to feel sad or not? You don't have to feel sad. You can feel any way you want to. If you remember to feel any way you want to. And you develop the skills of feeling the way that you want to. And there it is. Right in the Anapanasati Sutta. The skills to be developed is the skill of sukha. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pity. To become the winner, to become the uh, 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 satisfied with the way things are. That's the feeling that we want to have is the feeling of nurturing and friendship as opposed to the feeling of criticism.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I like this and I don't like that. That's how you become a master of the world is by mastering your own feelings. Feel the
2: way you want to feel. Yeah, he says, by eliminating uh, these pleasant feelings, we obtain something even better in return. We receive another kind of Vedana, a higher order of Vedana.
1: Mm-hmm. Which is what I've just been talking about. That higher order Vedana is Sukha. Yeah. So funny, I keep getting ahead of Bhikkhu Dasa when I try to describe <laughs> what we're talking about. You mentioned it, and then I say more yeah. about it. It's the next thing
2: he says. <laughs> yeah, Oh, no, it's true. It's true. And, and so, yeah, he, he sort of concludes this little summary of, of that second stage by saying, and so it's interesting because he calls the breath the body conditioner. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually uses that language uh, in, the, uh, in, in the translation. So we analyze that body conditioner... It's very, very important for
1: you to, to understand that. Let me, let me um, uh, expound upon that a little bit for understanding because that is, in fact, the absolute correct word, conditioner, mm-hmm. as opposed to cause. That in fact, the cause and effect or causality and all of that kind of stuff that we see in the physical world, we take that into the mental world also or into Anapanasati and talk about cause and effect. In the Paticca Samuppada, for instance, that Pasa causes Vedana and Vedana causes Tanha and Tanha causes Upadana is not the right way to look at it. A much better way to look at it is that they condition. Mm -hmm. Okay, so our thoughts condition our feelings, and our feelings condition our thoughts, just like the breath will condition the body. The breath doesn't cause the body, but it causes a condition for the body to make some changes. For instance, if you're not breathing well, if you're uh, um, depressed, not breathing, and then you start breathing well, the body will wake up. Mm-hmm. Or if you're tired and the mind is uh, uh, not in good shape, then you can take a few deep breaths and bring the mind right back out of it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, the, so the right word is conditioner. Viku Buddha Dasa and, and Santicaro, they've got that one spot on. That was absolutely correct. It's a conditioner, it's not a cause.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, it put a lot together to hear it described in that way. <clears throat> yeah, and he says, so we analyze the body conditioner until we know it in great detail and how it conditions the body. Mm-hmm. Then, by regulating the body conditioner, we master the body. Mm-hmm. This way we Just make regulating,
1: the Regulating, body- there we go, there it is, control. Controlling yeah. the breath. The vikta yeah. dasa right there regulating the breath i'm glad yeah. that you're reading this to reinforce the fact that i did learn it from him correctly <laughs> <laughs> because a yeah. lot of people say oh you're not supposed to control the breath especially from the burmese mm-hmm. but here bhikkhu dasa is making it plain and straight that you by knowing the breathing you begin to regulate it you begin to control it monitoring it uh, watching it uh and um uh riding herd over it.
0: Yeah. Oh interesting. Yeah.
1: Just just like the cowboy taking uh the old Chisholm trail and taking the uh uh the cows up to the railhead, the cowboy does not cause the cows, mm. but he does condition them to mm. market.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, maybe we should do, a, maybe there's a spiritual uh, reading that can be done on, a, on the movie Red River with uh, uh, John Wayne. <laughs> maybe it's all, yeah, maybe it's all uh, an allegory for, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, con- learning to condition and not master uh, or control, condition, not control. Mm. Uh, so, in this way, we make the body calmer and more peaceful.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Likewise.
1: Relax, relax. Take a deep breath
2: and sigh and ah, relax. Yes, yeah, yes. Likewise, that which conditions the mind is feeling. We calm the mind by controlling the Vedana so that they do not condition or stir up the mind. hmm. Thus, the first stage regarding the kaya and the second stage regarding the vedana follow the same basic principle and are similar in their method of practice. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's a good uh, point to sort of end for today. What do you think? All
1: right. Okay, yeah, we've been at it nearly two hours now, so I think that we can, uh, um, I hope that you've gotten some value out oh, of
2: this. Well, yeah. well, it's one thing to sort of read it on your own, and it's quite another to put it into dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it really brings uh, brings it out. Um, so, yeah, I found that uh, quite enjoyable. Um and we could continue along these lines if you found it fruitful yourself. Um, Okay, that will be a a long,
1: slow slog, but we can do it that way. Um, And that uh, in this regard, it also has the value uh, that the way that I'm discussing this on Skype, actually fits in with that book because there's a few places where I would make, uh, some changes to the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, sometimes students will catch me out on that. Ah, but you teach different than the book is here. And you know, and so I've got to go back and put all that together again, but I'm glad that you're reading out of the part of the book that I've got down pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but there's more to it than than just that but yeah we can we can finish with that book and then we can go off into other things but the the important part is is that we need to learn how to practice anapanasati because it's actually an easy thing to practice once we get the proper understanding so all we're doing with reading the book together and that kind of stuff is to getting to the point of understanding that all this is a practice that is to be done right now. Right. That is, uh, and that uh, as we're doing this practice right now, we'll develop the skills so that we get better at it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: A really clear example of that would be like uh, with sukkah. If we're going to develop sukkah, we have to practice sukkah. Would be very much like someone who wanted to play the uh, the piano, bought a piano, bought the books for the piano, hired a teacher, and uh, then uh, has his first lesson. And then the next week, he doesn't practice the piano, he practices the violin. <laughs> Will practicing the violin for the week, plus the book and the piano and the teacher, be enough for him to learn to play the piano. <laughs> Hmm. probably not no he's got to do the extra thing of actually practicing the piano itself Mm -hmm. so that means that we actually have to practice sukha Mm
0: -hmm.
1: we have to practice telling ourselves we feel good we have to practice telling ourselves this is okay to gladden the mind to bring up this sukha Everything is safe right now. Look around, no alligators, no mafia, no police. Everything is okay. Okay, so this is the way that we practice is to gladden the mind and bring the mind out of that muck or mire, the depression, the anger, whatever it was, so that you can feel the way that you want to feel because otherwise you will spend your life driven by your feelings right instead of having the feelings that you want to have and if you have the feelings you want to have then you do what you want to do which is probably not very much
0: (laughs) (laughs) Mm.
1: okay so let's leave it there i very much enjoyed our conversation thank you for bringing um this this book and by the way, there's this is not the only one. There are actually four books in print.
0: Mm.
1: But not all of them are in
2: English. So I did pick up a a few, so I also got this one.
1: Uh, which hang is- on I move move it over to this part of the screen. Move it now, it's too close. Okay, bring it back a little bit. Okay.
0: The hardware
1: Oh, the heartwood of the bodhi tree. Yes, I know that one. Yes, that's a series of three lectures on emptiness.
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. And then he's got a book. I think it's called um,
1: "Under the Bodhi
2: Tree." Uh, you
1: know, but that's, I, the new, that's the newest one. That one was done. Uh, that's actually a, uh, an anthology that was put together by Santicaro and published in 2017. Mm -hmm. That's the new book out. Where there's Hartwood, that's from the 60s. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I'm very interested in it uh, in light of his sort of non-dual ideas. Uh, I'm very, very curious uh, where he goes. His emptiness
1: about that is quite funny. Empty is empty. Yeah. Empty empty is automatically unity in the sense of how can you have two emptinesses? Emptiness is empty. <laughs> you don't have two of them.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's one other book I, I found. I think it's called Me, my Me and Myself. Mm-hmm. It's an anthology of shorter pieces. Mm-hmm. So it includes uh I don't think it's the whole thing, but it, it, it's a section uh, of Handbook for Humanity um, and No Religion uh, is in there. And then uh, Dhamma uh, Socialism, Dhammic Socialism and a few other pieces. So uh, that'll, be, that'll be good. I, my understanding is th- those are some of his better known and influential works. There is one other book I
1: would like for you to start reading. Hmm. The one between your ears.
0: Who
2: was it? Remember,
1: remember, remember to read the book between your ears. Watch what the mind is doing. Watch this Vedana. Watch these feelings. Watch this mental uh, uh, conditioning going on. Begin but. to understand that you are in fact driven by your feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Start noticing that. Read that book very, very well so that you know for sure uh, that you're driven by your feelings because you may not be driven so much by them anymore because you can see that connection. You can see that conditioning.
2: Yeah, I'm a strange, I'm a strange beast. Uh, uh... I tend to be sort, sort of hyper, uh, I don't know, intellectual um, wrapped up in my brain, but at the same time sort of like highly emotional uh, and, and there's this, you know, strange sort of interplay between those elements, but I, I am uh, practicing regularly. Uh, so I, you know, I, I'm, I have a, twice a day practice, you know, morning practice, evening practice, and, and it's How funny. many
1: times can you remember a day to watch your breath? They, but, I have seen it written that every individual, more or less, depending upon many conditions, but we will have thousands of breaths a day, maybe 10,000 breaths a day. How many of them are you going to be mindful of? How many of them are you going to notice? Now you're saying you practice twice a day. Does that mean that you notice two breaths out of the day? You can do better than that.
2: <laughs> it's a funny thing about the the Dhamma, you know, is that one, you know, um, so it starts out as, you know, maybe you practice once a day uh, for a little bit and then you expand your practice. Um, and then what you begin to see is the, is the way it begins to emerge uh, throughout the day, you know, here, there. And um, if you
1: are developing the skill of sati while you're sitting on the cushion or whatever terminology you want to use, then you're already developing that skill and it will pop up throughout the day by itself. What I'm inviting you to do is intentionally make it pop up. Yeah make this your point of view that i'm going to is uh, every breath that i can remember i will do it mindfully
2: mm-hmm. unremitting, unremittingly, pardon unremittingly i i think i've heard you say it should unremitting be
1: unremitting mindfulness can only be done by keep bringing it back and keep bringing it back and keep bringing it back over and over and over again and so um You can see where the practice of the Satipatthana gives the people the idea of sitting on the floor and doing what they call meditation, doing it once a day, twice a day. Anapanasati practice though, is in every posture throughout the day, whenever you remember it. So we can bring up anchors so that we can have more and more anchors that will give us more and more um, opportunities to be here now so that you become here now when you need to be here now Mm -hmm. so that the Vedana doesn't come up and drive things, that we can have sati come up when that Vedana comes up and we can say, wait a minute, I don't have to act on that feeling of not liking.
2: Right, and you can use the breath as a, a, a conditioner. To If you feel the sensations of anxiousness or whatever it is in the body,
1: you you can can breathe into that anxiousness, exactly. You can feel that uh, that anxiety and you know where it is in the body, but most people hate it. They want to get rid of it. That in fact, one of the ways of getting rid of anxiety is go do something and so when we're sitting there in anxiety we have the idea that oh i feel this way because something needs to be done i don't feel safe and so the story that i have is is that the um the old old man in the old old hovel many centuries thousands of years ago is laying on the floor in his hut and he feels anxious and his idea is oh i feel anxious because the fence needs to be fixed And so he goes out into the night, no electricity, finds rocks and fixes the fence to keep the wolves out and the goats in. He goes back in and he lays down on the the floor again. And guess what? The anxiety comes back. (laughs) But maybe that anxiety was there, but while he was working on the fence, he wasn't noticing the anxiety. He was busy. And so that gives us the delusion that our activity keeps us from being in a state of anxiety where in fact no the busyness means that we're no longer dealing with the anxiety now we're trying to get rid of it by doing something indirect the right way to deal with anxiety is look at it directly breathe into it can you make friends with it can you move it around can you when breathing in make it big and when you breathe out make it small can you move it from this part of the chest down to that part of the chest can you play with it can you turn it into a toy this is the way that we work with it by paying attention directly to it knowing that you can change this you can manipulate the way you feel you don't have to feel anxious and uptight you can take a deep breath and relax
2: instead yeah, it's it, It's funny. We we've sort of talked about kit children, and how they seem. Many of them seem to innately understand this sort of uh, attitude uh, of, of of playfulness, curiosity, um, good humor in the moment, in the present moment. And then as life goes on, you know. So, for instance, for myself. The strategies, so basically what I trained myself to do was to derive uh, satisfaction through accomplishing tasks. Mm-hmm. So you go to school and you say, okay, here's what I got to do today. I got to read this story. I got to write this essay. I got to go here. I got to go there. I got to go to the attendance office. I got to talk. I got to make a call. And then when you do all those things, y- you feel good because you moved forward. Until you think of the next thing that needs to be done, and and then yeah, right. Until the next thing, and then every day is a series of tasks meant to move you forward towards a future goal. Um, And and, you know, for a lot of people who go to school, you know, or they're pursuing a career, uh, that is the that's how they train themselves. You know, Mm -hmm. is did I do things? You know, and, and so I,
1: their lives then are driven by bad feelings.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's what Bika Buddha
1: Dasa was saying. That's it, right <laughs> there. You got it. Which means now that if you can change the way you feel, you can take over the world.
0: Hmm. And that right. does
1: not mean that you can win the election and become the next Donald Trump. What we're talking about uh, being a champion of the world is your own world, because you you create your own world.
2: Well, they're, they're all props, right? They're all mechanisms to try to create a new feeling. Mm-hmm. So if I make if I have a list of tasks and I accomplish a task, and I put a line through it, that task was really a mechanism to try to create a feeling of goodness.
1: Accomplish. Uh-huh. And now you're beginning to understand, hey, we can create those feelings directly. We don't (laughs) have to go do that task. We don't have to go repair the wall to get rid of the anxiety.
0: Right.
1: We can work with the anxiety directly.
2: Yeah, the the implications of that are pretty astonishing. Um.
0: <laughs>
2: Absolutely.
1: <Yeah>. Wakey, wakey. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm going for it. I'm going for it. Excellent, Alan. Excellent. Yeah. Well, let's bring this one to a close, and we'll talk later. Okay. Enjoy your practice. Go read that book. It's, it's got... <laughs> Something in there to check out.
2: Yeah, somebody, somebody—I can't remember who made that analogy. They said that um, you should de- that you should approach your meditation in a similar way to to the way you would approach reading a really good book. You know, you know, with that sort of right. attention and that interest and that. Uh, the right, pul- until the breath becomes
1: so good that you can't put it down.
2: Right, right. That should be the attitude. Right. Yeah.
0: Exactly.
2: Yeah. And as a reader, I can I can appreciate that analogy. So excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you once again. I think this is very, very uh, fruitful for me. I appreciate it. Excellent.
1: Okay, be well. May you have all the good feelings you want.:
2: Ah: uh, You too, you too. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye.